The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. I chose the topic uh, Mind is Medicine because um, it's clear that we all have a mind and we all at times need medicine. The uh, body and the mind are both subject to good health and bad health, if you will. And we all uh, have experienced the full range of good health and bad health. Partly because the uh, teachings of the Buddha have um, become more popular in the secular realm, in the world of stress management, pain management, treating depression, it's clear that what the Buddha taught and behind that the Buddha's understanding of mind is very useful for uh, health practitioners, the medical personnel and for each one of us who are concerned about uh, the relationship and the dialogue between the mind and the body that's going on all the time. <clears throat> Most of us, when we come to Dharma practice or when we hear the teachings of the Buddha, it is in the context of a very personal, experiential uh, observation of our mind and body. And a lot of the teachings, most of the teachings that we uh, receive in regard to the guidance for the practical teachings, the practical application of the teachings, and the uh, guidance in the cognitive reframing of how we see and understand life. Most of that teaching comes from the Buddha's discourses to his students, monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, royalty, merchants, warriors, and peasants. <clears throat> and these uh, discourses comprise what are called one basket of the teachings of the Buddha. There are three baskets of the teachings of the Buddha and the first is this compilation of just thousands of discourses that the Buddha gave over the course of his 45 years of sharing what he understood to be the truth called the Dharma. I mentioned last night that one of those discourses called the seven factors of enlightenment or seven factors of awakening is known as the healing sutta or sutra, healing discourse. Uh, in it, uh, the Buddha talks about the balancing of the energizing and the tranquilizing factors of mind, which brings the mind into balance, which gives rise 
to or from which arise the most healthy material elements of the body from a balanced mind. <clears throat> when the Buddha was sick, he asked to be given a talk about the seven factors of enlightenment and he himself offered a talk on the seven factors of enlightenment to others when they were sick. While the Buddha did give thousands of discourses on lots of topics and that's encoded in the first basket, there's a, there was at the time of the Buddha a, a community of men and women who gave up the householder's life, became monks and nuns, lived in community, and as any community needs and requires uh, some rules of guidance or rules of engagement or disengagement, if you will, uh, the Buddha also in time needed to kind of promulgate some rules for guiding the uh, organization of and the behavior of or the misbehavior of uh, the monks and nuns. And this is the second basket of the teachings of the Buddha. It's a container of all of the rules and the, the stories behind the uh, need for the rule, and some of them are quite fascinating, and then the rule itself. And so there's another whole area of the teachings of the Buddha around uh, human interactions, uh, around uh, the use of a renunciate community as a vehicle for practice towards awakening. And a third element of the rules that the Buddha uh, guided his community of monks and nuns by is for the monks and nuns to behave in such a way as to appear to be mindful and to appear to be um, caring, wise. And this was for the benefit of the lay people so that they would not lose faith in the teachings of the Buddha. And so sometimes you can read these rules or, or know of some of these rules and you'll think, well, good Lord, what does that got to do with you know, it seems kind of silly, but it's guiding the behavior, but it's also to preserve the faith of those who have faith in the Buddhas, monks and nuns, so that they will also continue to practice. It is considered one of the most grievous offenses for a monk or nun to damage the faith of those who are sincere in their seeking of the Dharma. And so it's incumbent upon uh, monks and nuns and we as lay teachers and representatives of the Buddhist teachings to uh, do what is required and to proscribe our own uh, behavior and lives in a way that would uh, preserve your faith, that would um, uh, 
allow you to have confidence in uh, the Buddhist teachings through our expression of it uh, in our daily life. That being said, let me uh, already apologize for anything that I'm going to say today that's going to offend you or embarrass you or feel like I'm sending you a zinger. Uh, I'm not doing that uh, intentionally to hurt anyone, uh, but sometimes you know, carelessness or just lack of sensitivity about individuals' conditions, sometimes it comes out. So let me apologize for, for any of that that's going to happen later today. <clears throat> the third basket of the teachings of the Buddha is called the Abhidhamma. And it is the, what would you call it? It's, it's the lists. You know the Buddha's lists? You know, the five this, the seven that, the eight this, the three that, the four this, the twelve, the fifty-two mental states, the twelve links of dependent origination, the you know, thirty-one planes of existence, and the four noble truths, the eightfold path, four right efforts, five aggregates. Well, the lists, the lists go on and on and on. But these lists weren't just made up. They were compiled from all of the discourses that the Buddha gave. And so the, the, the Abhidhamma is really the kind of the codification of what the Buddha said in the discourses. It has been embellished uh, a bit by scholars who kind of filled in the gaps and, and done a little creative massaging of the sutras to get these lists and get it uh, uh, encoded in a way that's uh, organized. <clears throat> There's some question and some uh, doubt and, and some speculation is to just where did the Abhidhamma really come from you know and there's there's those that believe the Buddha gave uh, the discourse on the Abhidhamma to his mother or yeah I think it was his mother uh, in one of those heaven realms during one three months rain period and it took him three months constant talking to get it out <laughs> in the heaven realm uh, but you know each day when he came down to earth for lunch he would, would share with Sariputra what he was talking about that day and Sariputra being the foremost in wisdom of all the Buddhist monks kind of grokked it and shared it with us uh, with others who have in turn handed it down to us well there's some that doubt that that's what really happened but nevertheless uh, somehow we have arrived at the 21st century with access to this Abhidhamma now at the time of the Buddha there were no recorders or I should say there were no mechanical recorders but there were fantastic minds around many of which could remember everything the Buddha said now I've been speaking for 10 minutes can you remember anything that I said <laughs> okay well that just gives you an idea of the uh, the, the, the degree of mental uh, development that men and women had at those times, monks and nuns. And there were those who could hear a discourse from the Buddha and when it ended, turn around and recite it word for word uh, for the first 500 years after the Buddha's uh, Parinibbana or what we conventionally call death. Uh, these sutras, rules, and the Abhidhamma were uh, entrusted to different groups of monks who were responsible for remembering certain 
sutras or certain passages of the Abhidhamma and for the first 500 years they memorized and handed on to the next generation uh, in that way until about 500 years after the Buddha's demise when they were finally written down. What was remembered and what was handed down is called uh, the Pali Canon. It is the teachings of the Buddha as agreed upon by 500 fully enlightened arahants, you know, one month or three months, I'm not sure what it was after the death of the Buddha, that this is what the Buddha actually said. There were those, even at that time, who disagreed with those 500 fully enlightened arahants and said, no, 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 I remember something else. I'm going to go on my own way. Thank you. Uh, I'm not going to play your game. But uh, And so there were, of course, many divisions uh, among the followers of the Buddha. But nevertheless, we do have a pretty comprehensive uh, package and a pretty authentic and a pretty reliable um, compilation of what the Buddha said. Just as an interesting footnote, uh, <clears throat> a few years ago I and some of the other Western teachers were uh, selecting some students, some of our senior students for a training, uh, for teacher training, and you know, picked a half dozen and then uh, we re-met uh, a young man from Sri Lanka, uh, Damarawan, which maybe some of you know about, who at the age of two, 35 years ago, um, you know, just started reciting, chanting in a language that his parents didn't know anything about. You know, just like, what, what, what is this guy doing? And so they recorded what he was saying, chanting, and, and shopped it around trying to fig find somebody who knew what he was saying. And in time they came to a Buddhist monastery and the monks listened to what the boy was saying chanting and realized that he was chanting Buddhist sutras, which he'd never heard in this lifetime. And he was chanting them, it was later discovered, in a language and in an intonation that was from 500 years after the Buddha's death. Well, so they asked this little boy, uh, hey, what, what, what's going on here? And at that time he was, you know, just kind of like, oh, well, you know, this is what I used to do. And he belonged to a, um, a monastery that was responsible for remembering certain uh, sutras. And so he just spent his life at that time just re remembering and recalling accurately uh, these sutras, one of which was the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, one was the Satipatthana Sutra on mindfulness, one was the Mangala Sutra, Mahamangala Sutra on the blessings. And you know, there's just many recordings of him doing this. Uh, he was a very shy boy, uh, and with all the publicity, he became kind of a, a Dharma hero of Sri Lanka. He became he was very shy and got all that attention kind of didn't set well with him, so he forgot uh, what he, he had recalled. Uh, but before he forgot, he, he remembered where his monastery was, and he took uh, archaeologists to a place in Sri Lanka where his monastery was and they dug it up 
and he pointed out where the library, the latrine, the kitchen, the dorms, and things were, and they found evidence of all that. Okay, so that's just to, just to kind of let you believe what you hear. Uh, and I'll try my best to tell you what they said. <clears throat> Can I ask you, could you repeat that monk's name? Dhamma One. Dhamma, R-U-W-A-N. Dhamma One. Hey, he's got a website now. You can go check it out. <laughs> um, so the, the Abhidhamma is this uh, compilation of or encodification of what the Buddha said in the uh, sutras and it is accepted as the authentic teachings of the Buddha and it is I have found it to be a help in my uh, understanding of the mind and uh, and understanding of practice and encouragement for practice I did not come upon the Abhidhamma until I had practiced for 10, 10 or 12 years 10 or 12 years of practice, then someone gave me this book on the Abhidhamma and uh, I was amazed that here in this book was kind of like the objective reality of everything I'd ever experienced in my life. Huh. Without there being a personality within it. It is a description of what is going on in this mind-body process without there being anyone there. It is just, a, well to me, it is a fascinating uh, and a very intricate, uh, subtle, elaborate, extensive uh, description of this process called life, which is, as we know, nothing more than discrete moments of experience, one after the other. It is an analysis of each of those moments, the synthesis of all of the mental and physical elements that come together in any one of those moments, and then a looking at each of those elements, each moment of consciousness, each of the, 50, each of the 89 or uh, moments of consciousness or kinds of consciousness, together with the 52 mental states that can or may or may not arise in any one of those consciousness along with the how many material elements are there? 24 material elements that make up all of the uh, sense world, sensory world that we know uh, how they are synthesized in a moment and how they move dynamically through time without there being anyone there both in the course of a single lifetime and in the course of multiple lifetimes if you believe in that. If you don't, it's true anyway, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> but <laughs> multiple lifetimes. It also uh, shows or explains or has a description of uh, what the uh, unpracticed, unaware mind stream is like and it also shows the effect of mindfulness training, the development of concentration and the development of insight and what that mind stream looks like. So uh, from, from totally deluded to fully enlightened. 
So it's a pretty comprehensive little manual there. Uh, but it's not easy going. So when I was asked to come to speak about something, I thought I would pick a topic that was interesting rather than just kind of plow through chapter one and then next year chapter two and later chapter three. Uh, I thought I'd pick an interesting topic like health, medicine, and the mind's relationship to it. And so today we'll be touching on different chapters and we'll be touching into different pieces of the Abhidhamma. There won't be a comprehensive view of it, there won't be any one particular chapter, but we'll just be touching different places in the Abhidhamma so you can begin to get a, a sense of the scope and how it's all put together and if you're interested then later we can talk about a more comprehensive uh, teachings on, on the Abhidhamma. Well, okay, so that's the introduction. Um, last night I spoke about the mind is medicine and I talked about the seven factors of awakening. Can I ask how many of you were not here for that talk? Okay. I'm not going to repeat it, but for those of you who were here, you will hear some of what you heard last night. Okay. As I mentioned in the um, introduction, um, One of the byproducts of mindfulness training or development of the mind is increasing balance of mind. Balance of mind, uh, we, we generally would call equanimity. But equanimity is not only balance of mind, it is a balance of, or a balance between faith and wisdom. If you have excessive faith and deficient wisdom, you can be kind of faithful to something that's not worth your, that's not, not very wise. You can be kind of foolish in your faith. If you have excess of wisdom and not, a, not uh, or deficient faith, uh, we're kind of locked up in our head with what we know and we don't have the faith to actually practice to realize it. Equanimity also involves being balanced in the energy tranquility or along the energy tranquility continuum. If there's excess energy which really wound up, there's not enough tranquility, we'll be anxious, uh, fretful, kind of overshooting the mark and not really able to be present. On the other hand, if we have excess tranquility and deficient uh, energy, we tend to sloth and torpor, sinking mind, uh, being a little uh, over, over tranquilized and, and the mind being quite dull actually. Pleasant, but dull. So when we talk about equanimity, uh, we're not just talking about a single piece or a single element or a single flavor, it's actually a very comprehensive uh, state of mind. So I want to talk about it a little bit. Um, I mentioned last night that in the seven factors of enlightenment, and seven factors of awakening, Dharma talk, the Buddha points out three energizing factors and three tranquilizing factors that are 
brought into development or maturity, each one into maturity, and into balance by the seventh factor, which is mindfulness. The three energizing factors are energy, of course, mental energy, uh, and the second is joy, which runs along a, along a continuum from interest to ecstasy or rapture. And that's that range of joy is pretty extensive. And the third energizing factor is what's called investigation of the Dharma. It is a wisdom factor because it is the quality of mind that is interested in understanding and looking at or being with experience to, I say, investigate it. It's not through thinking, but it is through direct contact, perception, and understanding of an experience that is this, this kind of investigation of the Dhamma. The three tranquilizing uh, factors are, of course, tranquility, calmness of, of mind, calmness of body, and as I mentioned last night, we say uh, stillness of body conditions stillness of mind. Stillness of mind conditions stillness of body. And so when you look at the rules for the monks and nuns, there's a lot of encouragement to be still. You know, to not wave your hands around, not move, not move fast, not throw your robes carelessly, but to do things in a very mindful, still, and we would, we would, we would hope, a mindfully present way. The stiller we are, the more we see. The slower we go, the more details we see. Uh, so that's the first of the tranquilizing factors. The second of the tranquilizing factors is samadhi, or concentration, uh, collectedness of mind, which is a result of the continuity of awareness, continuity of mindfulness. The more continuously mindful you are, the more collected the mind becomes, the less dispersed it becomes, the more collected it becomes, and the more collected the mind becomes, the more concentrated the mind becomes, the more details you see. It's like looking at, you know, if I hold up my hand and say, what do you see? You say, well, I see a hand. And I say, well, look a little closer. Oh, I see four fingers and a thumb and a palm. Okay, we'll get closer. And as you get closer, you see more details. Eventually, you see the, the, the lines on the palm. And if you look real close, you can find some scars you know, from knives and hammers and things. And if you took a little piece of tissue and put it under a microscope, you'd be looking at the same thing, but it'd be unrecognizable. Right? More details. The more concentrated the mind, the more details you see. You might notice this in your, in your meditation at some times, that when very still, you know, somewhere in the retreat or somewhere in a sitting, when you get very still, you can leave ordinary reality. You know, you're paying attention to the breath or sensations or whatever, and you leave ordinary reality and you're just into the pixelated universe of the body or the pixelated universe of the mind. And sometimes you can think, well, I'm not being mindful. I mean, it's like I forgot, you know. But actually, you're being mindful, but at a different level of reality. Slip through the conceptual, conventional understanding of what's going on into the experiential.
that's concentration. The third uh, tranquilizing uh, factor of mind is equanimity. It's the equilibrium of mind that uh, doesn't fall into reactivity. Whether something is pleasant or unpleasant, the mind is not reactive. It's able to be with, recognize, acknowledge, and not get entangled in anything. Whether it's really pleasant, like bliss, ecstasy, love, or if it's really unpleasant, like fear, depression, anxiety, cynicism, judgment. So you can see that a balanced mind is, or a balanced mind that has strong equanimity is very valuable in that it prevents you from being jerked around by anybody or anything. Unfortunately for us, equanimity is not valued in our culture. And so it doesn't get much, doesn't get much airtime. And in fact, as I mentioned last night, uh, we are encouraged to be very um, partisan, very either or, very yes, no, uh, very um, extreme and to dramatize the ordinary. And you can read it in any news magazine or magazine about Hollywood or Wall Street, you'll see it. It's just people don't talk in normal tones. It's always in hype, in drama. And while that's, that's what news is, or that's what the media is, that's what it thrives on, we should be cautious and say, you know, that's, that's not my life. That, that's not really beneficial to my life. That's not coming from a place of equanimity. And it doesn't condition equanimity in our lives. So we need to be a little cautious how we take that in and how we react to it or respond to it and do enough of our own practice to uh, insulate ourselves from being jerked around by that kind of energy if we indeed do value equanimity and a balanced mind. Just so you get some use out of the, home, the, the, the handouts, the seven factors that I've just spoken about are here at the top. We're looking at what are called the 52 mental factors. These are different qualities of mind or different capacities of mind, different um, functions of mind that arise in some combination in every moment of existence from conception to relinking consciousness death um, you can see that I've arranged them in a little table where there are seven universals that are perceptual and these are mental states that arise in every moment. Contact with an object or an experience, the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that comes from that contact or with that contact. Perception is a recognition, some level of recognition of the, the feeling or the object. Uh, volition is intention. Uh, we'll get to more of that later. One-pointedness is the, or single-pointedness is the concentration element or the concentration factor. It's present in every moment, even though we may not feel concentrated, in that 
out of all that's possible to be known in this moment, the mind picks one thing in each moment. And it's that single pointedness of this thing, this moment, which is the function of this one pointedness. Psychic life is just the, the element of the life of the mind. When it is gone, the mind ends, or the, I'd say the, the psychic life of that particular being ends, the body dies and eventually decays. Attention is manasikara, it is either wise or unwise. Unwise attention leads to uh, a lot of suffering. Wise attention is what we're cultivating when we develop any form of mindfulness. Now, of the seven factors that we, I just spoke about, one-pointedness is the samadhi factor. When this factor of mind is highly developed, then we experience concentration of samadhi. Let's see, what is the other ones? Energy. Where's energy? Oh, here we go. We have uh, six universals that arise in every moment. We have uh, seven universals that arise in every moment. We have six occasionals that may arise with either wholesome or unwholesome states of mind, one of which is effort or energy. Uh, there, are my, there are times, as you know, when you don't have any energy, so it doesn't universally arise. But there are times when you have unwholesome mind with a lot of energy. And there are times that you have wholesome mind with a lot of energy. So that is the energizing factor. Energy can be both wholesome and unwholesome. So even though it is one of the factors of enlightenment or one of the factors of awakening, it's only a factor of awakening when it's combined with wholesome intention. Let's see, joy. Joy is also one of those uh, affective uh, states of mind, mental states, that can arise with both wholesome and unwholesome uh, intention because you know you can take a lot of joy in doing bad things <laughs> you can also have experience a lot of joy in practicing the Dharma or being generous or otherwise so uh, even though it is a factor again a factor of awakening it can also be a factor of depravity depravity if you want to get really energetically joyful about doing bad things and people do and maybe you do sometimes we won't ask for any confessions, though. So. so we have, uh, there's the effort and joy. The uh, investigation the, uh, of the Dharma, the other third energizing factor that I spoke about, is the wisdom factor, one of the wholesome perceptual factors, wisdom. Because through that, um, through that investigation of the moment or as the investigation of the experience we do come to understand it so there is an element of wisdom in investigation so those are the three energizing factors balanced by mindfulness the uh, another one of the wholesome perceptual factors mindfulness can only arise in a wholesome state of mind uh, we do sometimes talk about wrong or, or instead of right mindfulness, right effort, we talk about wrong effort, wrong mindfulness. Uh, but it isn't this mindfulness. It's kind of a, a, a general mindfulness, but not uh, the wholesome mindfulness. 
So then we have the three tranquility um, factors, as I mentioned, the one-pointedness, uh, the perceptual universal of one-pointedness, when developed, is the samadhi. The tranquility is an affective, wholesome state of mind. And tranquility is um, not just being calm in the body, but being settled in the mind, where the mind is settled. I don't mean that it's just stuck in one place, but that it rests in a settled way on the object in each moment, whatever that is. Now it says two tranquilities there. I want to explain that just a little bit. Um, the nature of the mind is to know. That's what the mind does. It knows sight, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, and thoughts, or ideas, concepts. Uh, everything we know is because of the mind. When the mind uh, no longer exists, the body doesn't live. It's gone. So for the mind to be tranquil, for that function of the mind to be tranquil, is one of the tranquilities. The other tranquility is the tranquility of all these factors because these factors are the mental states. These factors arise with each moment of mind or consciousness. So we have the mind and the mental states arising together. One tranquility is the tranquility of the mind. The second tranquility is the tranquility of the mental factors. So you'll see other two pliancy, two buoyancy, two rectitudes, two tranquilities, etc. It's the mind and the mental states that we're talking about. So we have uh, tranquility is one of the uh, tranquilizing factors. We have one-pointedness is, is one of them. And we have equanimity, which is uh, also a wholesome, affective quality of mind that can arise or does arise in every moment, every wholesome moment. It may not be fully developed, it may not be very strong, but in every moment of mindful awareness, there is some some piece of tranquility, some piece of equanimity, some piece of mindfulness, some piece of energy, etc., etc. Uh, it's like a soundboard. You know, the mind is like a soundboard, and there's these 52 there's these 52 keys on the soundboard, and depending on your intention and your karma and conditions that are operating in the moment, those keys are being moved up and down and those levers are being moved up and down and you're singing a different song uh, throughout the day, depending on which of those elements are, or which of these mental factors are aroused and whether they're in balance or whether they're in conflict. And uh, that's one way of understanding the activity of the mind is the, the, the playing with the soundboard of the mental factors. So I spoke about the seven factors of uh, awakening, enlightenment, as the, um, the healing qualities of the mind. But what I want to mention now is that when the seven factors of awakening are aroused and brought to some level of maturity, there is a distinctive and unique 
transformation of the mind that takes place. But let me let me just read um, a brief description of what the mind is like before that takes place. Dan Goleman, in his book, the Dan Goleman, who's the editor, or the uh, author of Emotional Intelligence, and his recent book is Environmental Intelligence. Really, really cool. <laughs> Uh, in his book, The Meditative Mind, he writes that the normal consciousness, this is the consciousness of any of us before practice, is often highly unhealthy with a general heaviness and unwieldiness of mental processes where force of habit predominates and changes and adaptations are undertaken slowly and unwillingly and to the smallest degree possible. Where our thought is rigid, and inclined to dogma, and it takes a long time to learn from experience or advice. Our affections and aversions are fixed and biased, and in general, the character proves more or less inaccessible. Good luck. <laughs> well, lucky for us, we've all kind of escaped that bondage, and have at least <laughs> for some of the time, maybe and have started Dharma practice, and, and we've seen, I, I'm sure all of you can confirm exactly what Dan is saying, that sometimes the mind is just so stiff and so sluggish and so resistant and so tenacious and so identified with its preferences and likes and dislikes and biases that you, you can't move it, you can't shift it, you can't change it, even if you wanted to, you can't. And it's not because you're a bad person, remember that. It's not because you're a bad person, it's because the mind is untrained. And it is just a result of untrained conditioning. We see it around us all the time. It's everywhere. And we too experience it. So, when we practice and we develop the seven factors of awakening, there's another, as I mentioned, a, a transformation of mind that takes place. And it is these qualities, uh, these wholesome qualities that I want to speak about. There's two buoyancy, two pliancy, two adaptability, two proficiency, two rectitudes, and two tranquilities. These states of mind, when they're present, when they're aroused, bring about a transformation of both our perceptual, our affective, and our cognitive processes of the mind, where the mind lights up. It really just lights up and the mind just becomes a very lively, dynamic uh, process. I don't mean your thinking. I mean the activity of the mind, the cap capability or the capacity of the mind to, to see and perceive and to recognize and to uh, engage life wakes up in a way that is really, you, you really understand what waking up is all about. Let me just read a little bit of Mahasi Sayadaw's description of what happens with those. When the continuity of awareness leads to extraordinary condition of a mental and physical comfort and happiness at all times with strong equanimity, and it is accompanied by tranquility, as we know, one of the factors, where the feeling of the mind and body is tranquil without any agitation or worry, and it is experienced physically and mentally as soothing, cool feelings. All the time. <laughs> the lightness, or the, the, the lightness of mind, 
where I'm talking about uh, lightness, buoyancy. The light where the mind becomes light and lively with a lively awareness, where the mind becomes very creative, where the body and mind are very nimble, and at times it feels as if you're floating and you have no limbs. And when the mind thinks of something, you feel as if you could go there or accomplish it instantly because the mind is so dynamic and so alive and so lively. Um, some of you who've been on retreat, you know how creative the mind can get. Yeah? You know, you sit down, you're just watching stuff go by, you let go, let go, let go, let go. And suddenly, you know, the painting you've always wanted to do comes into mind, or the writing that you always wanted to do, or some solution to a problem in your life that you've been struggling with just is, has eluded you until you stop thinking about it, and the mind develops you through your effort of practice. You develop the mind, the capacity of the mind, to a point where you see the problem or the issue from a totally different perspective. A perspective that was inaccessible from the level of the development of your mind before, the, before you took the practice up, before you did the retreat. I've seen this, and I'm sure many of you on retreat have seen over and over and over again. You reach a point of you're stuck, you're stagnating, you're, you're, you can't move on, you can't figure it out, you can't resolve it, you can't make a decision, you can't, it just isn't moving. You know, that stuck, rigid, fixed mind is in full display. And after some period of practice, it might just be a sitting. It might just be during a sitting, it might be during a retreat or whatever, when the mindfulness is aroused and the mind becomes more developed with these wholesome states of mind, these wholesome factors. It's like you can look at that same situation and it is so obvious what you need to do or what the answer is or what, how to resolve it or how to fix it or how to approach it or how to express it. It's not because you were stupid and now you're smart. It's that the actual functioning of the mind has been developed. The capacities of the mind have been developed by just paying attention, just being mindful. That's what these qualities of mind are pointing to. Pliancy of mind refers to when the mind and the body become gentle and tender without being rough or rigid. And in the mind you become respectful towards all things, where your mind becomes flexible and adaptable to any object, any experience. Nothing is out of bounds. Where you're able to practice quietly and calmly rather than in fits and starts. Wouldn't that be nice? It happens. Kamanyata, Kamanyata is adaptability of mind where the mind and the body are very healthy. The mind is healthy. The mind is vigorous. It's lively. It's, it's not uh, stuck. And the body too is very healthy, enabling one to sit for multiple hours continuously without any movement, without any stiffness, without any pain or tiredness. Won't that be nice? <laughs> it happens. I mean, all of you have had periods of time. If you've been, as you practice, you'll have periods of time. It might only be 
for five minutes during a sitting, it might be for a day during a retreat. But you have periods of time where it's just like, I could do this forever. Of course you can't, because the mind changes. That soundboard, somebody is working that soundboard and things change. But for that period of time, you get a glimpse, you get a taste of that quality of mind. Now, as we continue in practice, these qualities become more mature, more stable, more balanced, less variable. Uh, proficiency of mind means that, or pointing to the mind and body being very strong, not just healthy, but strong, enabling you to observe any experience that arises, moment after moment, without hesitation, without procrastination, and without being stuck. Ujukata mind is straightness of mind. I think I have that down. To straightness. Yeah, to rectitude of mind is um, a quality that arises with mindfulness. It, when it arises strongly through practice, rectitude of mind means you can no longer deceive yourself. Where hypocrisy is impossible and uh, the mind becomes very straightforward and honest, no deceit, and you see things as they really are, whether you want to or not. Ooh. Well, we think we want to see things without deception, but when we actually see them, we can be surprised. But this is this is the this is the quality of mind that is um, this is the quality of mind that arises with mindfulness, and allows us to see the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of everything we do or everything we've done and that we review. And our self-justifying, rationalizing uh, misbeliefs about how things were is seen through. And this, this can be rather painful, frankly, uh, because we see the things that we've done that are so shameful, so humiliating, so rough, so <coughs> crude, so un unskillful. And we, we can't uh, deny it, and, and we can't avoid seeing it. Uh, so this, this is uh, not easy to do. Uh, and, and actually, when mindfulness gets stronger and we begin to see this, there's often a lot of resistance. Uh, there's a lot of resistance. We fall asleep a lot. We get restless. We get angry. We blame. Uh, we experience a lot of pain. Uh, we, we, we lack confidence, uh, we blame the teacher, we blame the practice, we blame our spouse. We do anything except acknowledge, you know what, this is the way it is. This is, this is the way it was. I really, you know, it was really a silly, stupid, hurtful, shameful, humiliating thing to do. And you know what, it's really interesting. While we're at that level of observing the phenomena that I was such a jerk, I was so hurtful, I was so... It's really painful, really painful. And when this mindfulness gets really strong and developed, we have the opportunity of shifting that cognitive misunderstanding. Those things happened the way they did due to conditions 
that were beyond your control. There was no wisdom there. There was no uh, ethics there. There was no energy there. There was no whatever there. There was a lot of fear there. And so decisions were made, actions were taken, and a sense of ourself as being right was established. And now we see with clarity that that wasn't right, that was wrong, or that was an unskillful thing to do, meaning it caused pain or suffering to myself or others. And when we see that, there is the understanding, oh, this whole process is an impersonal, un, it's an unfolding of impersonal conditions. It was then, it is now. What's required of us is to allow ourselves to feel that, to feel the shame, to feel the pain, to feel the fear, to feel the jealousy, to feel the anxiety, to feel the restlessness, to feel the whatever. Well, we think we will die. We do. We think, my God, I can't allow myself to feel that because it is so painful. And in fact, you will die. The sense of self that was conditioned by those impersonal conditions at that time or at this time, the sense of self that got constellated out of those impersonal conditions will die, will come to an end, which is really what you want. You want to be free of that guilt, free of that fear, free of that jealousy, free of that anxiety, free of that shame, free of that humiliation. We don't know it at the time, but when we allow ourselves to feel it, it's just another impersonal unfolding set of conditions. That's where letting go due to wisdom takes place. Did you follow that? <laughs> okay. Um, so these are the, um, I'm not going to go over all the 52 mental states, but these are the, these are the mental factors that we're working with, both with the unwholesome mind and the wholesome mind. Now, I read what Dan had to say about the uh, unwholesome mind, or the normal consciousness that is not yet awake. Let me read to you what the, the uh, wholesome mind, the ideal type of Buddhism, the ideal type of personality would be like. Now, up until a few years ago, in Western psychology, there was no articulation of what an ideal type of personality would look like. Normal, yes, but ideal, no such thing. Only recently has there been uh, attempts to articulate what the ideal type uh, from Western psychological point of view would be. But before that, the way Dan put it was the ideal type, the healthy type of personality. Now remember, if, if a little bit of mindfulness can have significant, measurable, scientific effect on people's health, immune systems, and other uh, measures of health. Imagine what a lifetime or a lifestyle of awareness would do. If the mind is healthy, the body's healthy, or within its limits. So the ideal healthy type of personality, which is not found in Western psychology, or was not at the time this was written, is without greed for sense desires, 
without anxiety or resentment, without any fear of any sort, where dogmatisms, aversions to loss, disgrace, pain, and blame aren't present, Whew. where there's no lust, no anger, no suffering, where the need for approval, pleasure, praise, and desire for anything is absent. Whew. There is a prevalence of impartiality towards others, an equilibrium at all times, with an ongoing alertness and calm delight in ordinary and boring experiences. There's strong compassion and loving kindness with quick and accurate perceptions, and one is able to maintain composure and skill in action, being open to others and responsive to their needs. Hey, cool. Well, I hope we get there soon. <laughs> These are the elements that are at play in, uh, in our development of mind. These are the elements at play in the mind being either good medicine or bad medicine for you. Any questions? <laughs> So the comment is about uh, you know the ideal type and the reality that we seem to experience about ourselves, which is sometimes seems to be far away from that. And uh, was there a particular question or just yeah, I think generally? That it would be just sure. Sort of unhealthy, sure. Um, so self-loathing and self-hatred yes. and self-hatred sort of things sure. really are. Yeah, it could lead to, and, and the comment is it could lead to or might lead to self-loathing, <laughs> despair, uh, self-disparaging, and uh, rather than just a record. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Uh, that that is one possible reaction to hearing about a, a possible uh, an ideal type. But I think rather than saying, well, that's that, and I'm here, and holy cripe, you know, what a jerk. I mean, I'll never make it, and give up. I think what it really points to is the possibility of a direction. We see that in our life, yes, this is, and it's essential to be able to acknowledge this is the way it is for me right now. But in every moment that we do that, we also have the possibility of setting a direction in our life, just even for that, just for that moment, which direction do you want to go? You can go towards cultural conditioning, which is we are bombarded with all the time, or you can just entrench yourself more deeply in the way you are now, or you can have exposed yourself to 
an articulation of an ideal type or possibilities, you know, that it is possible to be more tranquil or mindful or aware or loving or compassionate or responsive. And in that moment, direct yourself in that, turn yourself in that direction. Uh, what makes a difference? What, what is it that's going to choose to resort to cultural conditioning, to stay stuck in our present conditioning, or to aspire to a wholesome type or an ideal conditioning? So the question is, what is going? The question is really, we we have these directions that we can that can be chosen. What is it that's going to make the choice? Yeah. So is one possible answer to that question then if you just you, you understand that ideal thing and then you watch yourself and you compare you're comparing yourself to that ideal and when you're doing one of those things and it feels good if you're observing it and it feels good and right, then that is like the positive reinforcement that you know, so by just paying attention yeah. I feel good when I, when this happens and oh yeah, it's on the list. You yeah. know, and then oh, yeah. I feel bad when I do this and oh, it's on the unwholesome list. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, that I, th I think that is the the direction that we who are practicing, or to the extent that we practice, have chosen. Is that well? I'm going to find out for myself. Is this possible? You know, is it possible for me, even in a moment, to have some wholesome states of mind and to experience the uh, the the benefit of that? And you know, if you if you never hear the teachings of the Buddha, you never have the opportunity. Okay. Yeah, there's there's some opportunities, but you know you don't have the opportunities that the Buddha's teachings point to. So, because we've heard, now we have a choice. We have a choice whether to actually apply and try and, and make effort. You know, the Buddha spoke more about right effort than anything else in his in his 45 years of teaching, and it's true. It is by paying attention to our own experience that we will confirm or deny uh, the truth of what is revealed in this, in, in this Abhidhamma or in the teachings of the Buddha, and we'll know for ourselves. Yeah. So you might ask yourself, you know, how long have you been practicing the Dharma? Well, a year or two or a decade or two. Why? Why do you continue? I mean, I, you know, I don't know about you, but it's not always fun. You know, for me, it's like hard. It's like hard. It's painful. It's shameful. It's like, oh my God. It's like, do I want to see that again? Well, yes, I do. But no, I, I, I really don't. But some part of me doesn't want to. But yes, I do because I know that in time, I let go. I let go of this stiffness. I let go of my prejudices. I let go of my biases. I let go of my stuckness. And practice is rewarding in that way. Yeah. Isn't that the book Radical Acceptance is essentially a whole book just about this, about seeing clearly, the process of beginning to see clearly what we've done, what we manifest in a given moment, the mixtures, and, and the process of learning to accept that. I, I don't know the book, but it's certainly uh, the practice is the process of paying attention and in the course of which we do a personal history review and we see what we've done and we see it with different eyes we see it with greater clarity of mind greater clear clearer perception less reactivity and we have greater understanding and that in part helps condition how we will behave or how we will act in the future 
Sure. And, and these are the thing I think is that these aren't attributes of the self. You know? Yeah. It's like that's right. The as, shame is related to that old, you know, there is a self here that, you know, is not is always on the balance beam. Is it good or is it bad? You know, and not, and we begin to see. I think this is helpful for me. Is part of the process of seeing that there there is no balance beam and there is no self. It's just manifestations and conditions at a given at any given moment. So it's true. Trying to direct those. As we pay attention, we will definitely see that there is no fixed self in this process. You know, there are times when we're at one, we appear to be at one end of the extreme, and times where we appear to be at another. I was in Rochester yesterday, and one of the men who came up to uh, speak with me uh, afterwards was talking about his son, his 14-year-old son, who. Uh, plays music his dad just has a hard time with. <laughs> and his dad, in his own kind of gentle way, said something to him about, well, there's really a lot going on in your mind now, isn't there, son? And, you know, kind of criticizing in a way that the son caught really quick. And his son said, yeah, dad, but that's who I am. And so dad was asking me, how, how, how do I work with that? This is who he is. This is who he thinks he is. And I said, well, don't deny that. Don't deny that that's who he is in that moment. But point out to him that five minutes ago he wasn't that way. And in ten minutes he's not going to be that way. And for him to just start noticing how changeable and dynamic this sense of who I am really is. And then you begin to see that it's not very fixed. It's not. So. That, that, that is a way to, to notice that. Yeah. I just really like what you said about those moments when you just feel like we can't hold it, like we think we're going to die. Yeah. I just want you to say more. You what? <laughs> <laughs> like how to help that dying mom. <laughs> how, to die, how to die a little more gracefully. Yeah. You know, sometimes, as I mentioned, that sense of self does have to die. But we, the we of it, the intention in the mind that is doing this, has to, uh, can can do this when we understand that this is what the process is. Just be with this experience, and that's really that's all we have to do is just be with it. And when the feeling comes, when any feeling comes of, you know, I mean. They are feelings that just take the wind out of your sails. You know, guilt or shame or humiliation. I mean, particularly those, those ones are just you, you, you just... you can't hold your posture up. You can't hold any pretense in the mind. You can't hold a, onto that sense of yourself. You just kind of fall into a mental, if not physical, puddle. Out of which awareness and understanding emerges. And it's very fearful. It's a very, it's a, it can be a terrifying process, as, as you know, as, as we all know. It can be terrifying to allow ourselves to experience that. But what's actually happening is that sense of ourself, constellated at the time, is seen through. 
and it's not seen through by me, the new, better, you know, new and improved Steve. It's seen through by these impersonal factors of awareness and understanding and commitment and confidence. Confidence comes from that. Keep keep nudging along. You can't you can't force it, but don't resist it. So the comment is, as as we develop, as we develop an understanding or a sense of a no self or no fixed self. Okay, it's still recording. As we develop a sense of no self, or as we see through the illusion of a fixed sense of self, that uh, in fact there still is a pretty strong self-centric, self-organizing principle. And I think this is what you're referring to, the, the, the ego element. I don't really use the word ego in my teachings because it's a psychological term. I don't really know what it means. I have a, only a, a general layperson's imagination of what it means. But I mean, there's a, a thing that wants things, the thing that desires, the thing that then we look at and we go, well, that's not really self. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's the language that is hard to accept, and it's easy, it's hard to see through. Uh, it feels like there is definitely someone in there that wants and does, and but when we look closer, we'll see that it is really uh, not there. <laughs> There, there is the feeling of wanting, the feeling of desire, the feeling of whatever. And when we look closely at where is this coming from, we see it's coming out of impersonal states of mind that are arising if we get identified with them, I'm wanting. If we don't get identified with them, it's just wanting's arising, wanting's being seen, wanting's passing away. Yeah. But for now, if that's your experience, by all means, acknowledge the way you experience it now. Because that's that's where we all begin and that's where we all work from all the time is what is your experience now? And not only what is your experience, but what is your understanding? Because it's understanding that is going to free the mind. We hear the teachings. It's not for us to accept them on dogma or belief or faith, but to hear them and just to say, okay, well, maybe. Continue to do your practice, and in time you'll discover it's either true or not. Or for a period of time you may think it's not true, and later you discover that it is true. But it's through your own investigation, through your own development of awareness, development of understanding, exposure to these teachings as a way of guiding your practice, or inspiring your practice, or uh, developing faith in practice, uh, that we do these things. Okay. There are instances where those who practice can feel that when they do something, 
experience was empty because it really wasn't them. You know, there's no sense of self. It's not me who did it, you know. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I'm getting at is there needs to be an understanding of It's not a moral oh. justification for action. Oh, sure. I agree. There's, you know, to 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 resort to a conceptual understanding of no self. Hey, it's not me that hit you, <laughs> you know, or or some simplistic thing like that. That 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 is definitely uh, an unskillful uh, denial. You know, it's just denial and avoidance. And uh, while sometimes people do uh, resort to thinking, oh, that's the experience of no self. Uh, that that's wrong, definitely wrong. But you're right. Sometimes people do, you know, try that for a while. A good teacher will bust them really quick. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.